Happy Sunday, everyone. Happy May Day. Hope you all are doing well. I'll just let uh, the room populate. Hope you are doing okay. For some reason, I can't see anyone. I just said there's another person with me, but I can't see them as of right now. Now I see three. Okay. So there seems to be a little bit of a lag. No worries. Happy May Day, everyone. Happy May Day. Hope you are doing okay. Now I got eight. Oh, now I see you. So yeah, happy May Day. May 1st, International uh, Day for Working People. The International Day of the Working Class. So it is always a really good day today. So today, though, I wanted to discuss first, I'll just go over what happened to Daily Beast. You may know, you may have seen on Twitter, you may have seen my video on it on my YouTube channel, The Left Lens, or you may have seen it elsewhere, but the Daily Beast has gone on the attack, not just of me, but of uh, people such as Ben Norton, friend of the show, Lee Camp, Jingjing Lee, uh, Samira Khan was in there, you may know her from Twitter. And um, I feel like I'm missing. Oh, no, I think that was the five. So, oh, Max Blumenthal. So it was a smear piece. It was a hit piece called Meet the Sneakiest Defenders of Putin's Invasion of Ukraine. So for some context, I was contacted by a so-called journalist named Matthew Forrester. I believe it was late March to begin. And I was hesitant to get into a phone call arrangement with this person because, first of all, if you know about the Daily Beast, you know that it is an IAC-funded uh, uh, brand, uh, a corporate media brand of this monopoly, the IAC, which mostly does like tabloid papers entertainment. Sitting on the board of the IAC as a director is Chelsea Clinton. And so you know what you're getting with the Daily Beast. It is a McCarthyist, new Cold War-oriented, reactionary, warmongering paper that publishes mostly garbage. I don't know if you've ever read anything from there, but I highly, highly recommend that you do not. But nonetheless, they've been on a tear over the last year, right? They went after Jimmy Dore, the dirtbag left, they called them. Then they went after Gonzalo Lira. And now they are going full McCarthyist in their attacks on us. And in these attacks, right, first I received this huge 750-word email of questions when I basically said, look, I don't have time to talk to you over the phone, which I really didn't. And I knew where it was going. I knew how uh, we would be smeared, how I would be smeared. So I was like, let me not get into a phone call conversation where my words can be twisted. So I asked for the questions in order before I agreed. And he did send 750 words full of them. And they were all oriented toward painting me as some agent of the Communist Party of China, as being some kind of secretive, sneaky journalist who was really just peddling misinformation on behalf of Russia and China. And so, you know, at first I was like, look, I don't have time for this. First of all, there were way too many questions to even, uh, to even parse through. But then 
<clears throat> when I looked at the contents of them, I was like, look, this is, this is not worth my time. So I just let it go. And then in April, I received a follow-up email with claims that they were going to make about me, which I'm going to turn into an article, my responses to those, because I felt, okay, uh, these are the claims that he supposedly says he's going to use, this Matthew Forrester character, so might as well answer them. And I did. So the article was published, and of course, it paints me as all sorts of things. I'm a misogynist for questioning the narrative on Xinjiang, especially in regards to, to Cerne Ziawudin, who uh, is a Uyghur human rights project back NED-backed so-called uh, quote-unquote victim of concentration camps in Xinjiang. Uh, where she claimed that she was sexually assaulted, which contradicted a narrative that she gave to the BuzzFeed a year earlier. I wrote an article about this in the gray zone in February of 2021, talking about her connections uh, to Radio Free Asia, the National Endowment for Democracy, and how we should be questioning this narrative when it comes to geopolitics. Uh, Just like we should be questioning uh, this believe all women narrative, not because rape isn't a legitimate problem, especially for women, but because when you factor in other issues, for example, like the history of slavery and white supremacy uh, in the United States, just specifically, not uh, geopolitics notwithstanding, but even just in the United States, you you cannot believe, for example, every white woman that accuses a black man of rape and sexual assault because that leads into this whole legacy of Jim Crow, where there were thousands of black people lynched because of false accusations of sexual assault and of other so-called incursions on mainly white women. So we have to be very clear about this. And But I'm a, I'm a misogynist, according to Matthew Forrester. I'm also not transparent, funnily enough. I supposedly don't indicate that I... Uh, signed a petition for Friends of Socialist China, even though I co-edit Friends of Socialist China, and I literally put it on my Twitter bio. But nonetheless, there was just smear after smear after smear against me. They kind of he kind of chopped it up into five different art essays, one for each person targeted, and so. You know, I'm not going to go over all of the ridiculous claims made against me. You can find that in my video on the subject on the Left Lens YouTube channel, and I address many of the claims there. But the most important thing to note about this attack is not necessarily what is being said about myself, about Lee Camp, about Max Lewenthal, etc., etc., because one of the big themes is that we are some sort of grifters as well, that we take money from Patreon, oh, Lord forbid, that we raise some revenue for independent journalism when uh, there aren't really any outlets capable of paying or wanting to pay a living wage for journalism because of what we speak about. And I've, uh, I've experienced this firsthand where you have such a backlash against any sort of coverage about China that isn't negative that uh, most, most outlets from left, even independent media from the left to the right, they don't want to touch this subject unless you are mimicking the propaganda war led by the State Department and its uh, complicit media apparatus. So, God forbid, right, that journalists like myself raise money on Patreon uh, just so that 
we can be compensated uh, for our labor by supporters and readers, right? That's that's a crime, right? We're we're hiding how well we're doing uh, because of this, and it's just it's absolutely such a bad faith smear. But uh, the reason why this smear is very important, the reason why it's so important that we're smeared based on the revenue that we bring in, which if you know anything about Patreon. You know, and I, I will plug it May 1st, right? Uh, the link is in the Cold War Brew um, uh, description, I believe, and my or my profile description. I forget which one. Just tap on my face and you'll find it. So, I'll, of course, I will plug amid talking about why I'm being smeared for raising revenue on Patreon. The, uh, the real reason for this is because there's a censorship campaign that the Daily Beast is waging. The Daily Beast is saying that we should be removed from all of these platforms and not just Patreon, but YouTube and Twitter and even Facebook. And in the article written by Matthew Forrester, he literally says in the concluding uh, section that the Daily Beast went to each and one of these outlets and said, look at how these figures, myself, Lee Camp, etc., Ben Norton, Jing Jing Lee, Max Blumenthal. Look at how these figures are violating your terms and agreements and your policies and your standards. Shouldn't they be removed? At least that was what was suggested, right? They went to them, they showed videos and our content and said, this violates your policy. What do you have to say about that? Essentially egging on our removal. And of course, you all know from a prior, if you have listened to my prior podcast here, you know that this has a context, that this isn't the first time that this is happening, that uh, Lee Camp, who was really the principal target of this article, the article introduced with Lee Camp, he was literally fired from RT America because that program had to shut down due to this censorship campaign that is wall-to-wall from the corporate U.S. corporate media to the intelligence apparatus, the U.S. government, etc. So this has a context, right? Lee Camp has been harmed by it. Jingjing Li, the CGTN journalist who is a friend of mine, she has, this is her third time being targeted in the corporate media. The Associated Press attacked her for being a so-called quote-unquote Chinese lady influencer using a former FBI agent as their principal source. And then the New York Times also targeted her. And Ben Norton has been targeted in the New York Times of late. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There is this, and now you know that the, U- the, the U.S.'s Biden administration is starting this misinfor- this like disinformation board in order to essentially do what the Daily Beast did to me and the four other uh, journalists and personalities and anti-war activists uh, that they targeted. So this was released, uh, uh, you know, this article was released April 29th at 5 a.m. Essentially, it seems to try to not have many people see it. And this article actually was ratioed pretty terribly on the Daily Beast's Twitter account. And I also got into it with Matthew Forrester because I invited him to my show, 
when I was going to respond to it. And of course, what he said, just like all of these neoliberal, imperialist, new Cold Warrior hawks say, they say, we're not going to legitimize you. You're just a misogynist. You're just uh, an apologist for authoritarianism, quote unquote, right? So he completely declined to come on and defend all of these smears and the claims that he leveled against us. And so uh, this article is really just such a prime example of how how far the the media the corporate media will go to silence us and this is a big part of the new cold war the new cold war is all about silencing those voices those activists those movements those nations that are opposing imperialism that are go- trying to chart a different course Forrester accuses all of us, and especially me, of being a quote-unquote campist, that I am encouraging campism, that the world is divided into camps. I got to say that this isn't me dividing the world into camps. The United States is doing that as we speak. The United States is waging this uh, horrifically damaging proxy war against Russia, against China, these escalations on all fronts. And, and they're the ones who are creating the camp. Now, I don't believe that Russia and China's partnership, for example, is wholly dependent upon the U.S.'s aggression. So I don't ascribe to the, the U.S.'s bringing Russia to China narrative because I think there are many good reasons why Russia and China would cooperate economically, politically, etc. However, it is true that Russia and China ha- are now even closer because there are concerns in terms of foreign interference from the United States and its partners that bring them together in other areas. For example, the need to counter color revolutions. You had one in Hong Kong, 2019 into 2020. And then, of course, you have with Russia a constant stream of threats from color revolutions, whether it's from within its own borders, tens of billions of dollars of funding from the National Endowment for Democracy to create the so-called opposition to Vladimir Putin and the United Russia Party's political legitimacy through people like uh, Navalny, for example, uh, Alexei Navalny. And then you also have in Ukraine, right, this very conflict that we're talking about, 2014 Maidan, so-called Maidan Revolution, the Revolution of Dignity, which was literally a color revolution funded sponsor with billions of U.S. dollars to essentially strengthen the far right, embolden them, and uh, give them the support logistically that they needed to uh, wage a successful coup. And this also occurred in 2004 to a smaller degree, but it was that color revolution in 2004 that helped pave the way, right? You had in 2011, all the things that we talk about now with the far right in Ukraine being emboldened. In 2011, prior to Viktor Yanukovych's uh, presidential victory, you saw... Um, or, or at least in certain areas in Ukraine uh, during the early period of Viktor Yanukovych's uh, reign, uh, you saw this far right trend occurring, right? You saw the celebrations of, of ban- banderites and, uh, and Nazis. And so uh, this, you know, this threat of color revolutions is real and it's part of the reason why Russia and China politically are becoming and militarily are becoming closer and closer. But nonetheless, right, it is not 
the left. It is not people like myself or Lee Camp that are dividing the world into camps. It is imperialism. Imperialism is waging this campaign of hostility against Russia and China and all of the peripheral uh, countries, etc., uh, that are targeted in this larger new Cold War, whether we're talking about the Asia-Pacific being flooded with military bases, whether we're talking about the expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe, whether we're talking about Latin America in this attempt to try to starve Venezuela and Cuba, all of that is to break any kind of chains and links that are built between China, Russia, and uh, the larger global South. Uh, That at least in a a large degree, is the basis for these policies, as well as, of course, the general and the specific, right? The specific said, of course, Cuba and Venezuela on their own are seen as threats to U.S. hegemony. But you add in this possibility of Russia and China helping these countries develop and survive and stabilize, and then you have an even more dire situation for the empire. And, And so... Matthew Forrest is carrying water. And when I was carrying water for all of this, he's carrying water for uh, the State Department. And that's what the the Daily Beast does. And of course, why wouldn't it with uh, such uh, a history as uh, being a wholly owned subsidiary of a Clinton-backed corporation, the IAC? Of course, this would be the case, that the Daily Beast, as little red as it is, would try to take center stage here, uh, along with its uh, partners and pals in the New York Times, Associated Press, etc. So this is the situation uh, that we're in. It is, uh, one, chilling in a way, because it is meant to try to remove our voices and just try to get rid of us. Right, kind of in the spirit of May Day, if you are a working class journalist trying to expose the empire, trying to talk about this new Cold War, trying to do what is best for you and your class, because we are, as individuals, connected to this larger class struggle at play internationally, uh, then you are deemed an agent of the CCP, a Putin's puppet, a dupe of Russia, uh, whatever it may be. And of course, as I said before, this is a long history. Uh, This began really in in a specific sense with Russiagate, with Donald Trump's victory, how the elite reacted to that in the realm of repression. The elite, but bipartisan, right? Because you had a lot of Republicans, a lot of GOP types, a lot of national security state uh, apparatchiks going into Hillary Clinton's big tent, collaborating with the corporate media, the intelligence apparatus, as it decided to label anyone who questioned U.S. foreign policy as an agent of Russia. And then, of course, it moved on to China. During It really ramped up with China during the Trump administration. But the seeds were laid by the, the final years of the Obama period into the 2016 election. We saw just a massive reconstruction of the Internet sphere, uh, the algorithms of major search engines like YouTube and Google were changed so that our content would be suppressed. And then you also had Twitter do the same thing on their algorithm, Facebook. I mean, Facebook is long gone, long useless uh, for our purposes 
uh, as a peace activist, journalist, etc. And then you had, of course, the removals, right? Thousands of accounts, Venezuela, Nicaragua, China, Russia, whatever it is, any targeted countries. And then you had the targeting of the media, uh, Press TV, RT, Sputnik, having to register under FARA, being removed from Facebook, and then uh, and other and Twitter, etc. And then it really ramped up during Russia's military operation to include uh, the entire closure of RT America, and then of course the removal of even more accounts, right? And and really the attempted erasure of, of I mean, people like Chris Hedges and Lee Camp and Abby Martin, their work just being going poof on YouTube, just because it was associated with RT. And so. Uh, I mean, this is a long-standing campaign. It is part of this new Cold War because the silencing of our voices means the empowerment of... That's the dialectic. It means the empowerment of the hegemonic narratives, the lies that were told about Russia and China, uh, the whole quote-unquote threat narrative that we're supposed to believe that Russia is really the big threat to world peace, that China is the big threat to world peace and stability, when, of course, the reality is is that it is the United States and its allies that are setting the world ablaze, and they have their sights set on Russia and China because they see those two, it sees those two countries as the great power competitors as countries that do present a possible threat to U.S. hegemony. And they are not wrong because neither Russia nor China want to uh, essentially operate in the world in the manner that the U.S. does. Because, I mean, the writing is on the wall. Uh, Even if you subscribe to the belief, which I do not, that Russia and China are somehow these are somehow these nefarious actors, proto-imperialists, whatever, that they uh, want to go down a path uh, of imperialism. Uh, It's completely ridiculous to think this, since I think Russia and China, regardless of what you think of their internal situations, uh, they've learned quite well uh, what has happened uh, to imperialism, uh, to U.S.-led imperialism over the last several decades I mean, the the economic crises, the decline, the quagmires, the endless wars. What does that really have to offer developing countries like Russia and China? That really only has to offer the further uh, gutting of any kind of social safety net and social welfare system in those countries, which, especially in the case of Russia, have experienced this at some point in their history. China, a hundred plus years ago, was a country that had its resources siphoned from it uh, by foreign powers to a, and, and placed and this placed the country in a complete state of extreme poverty, one of the poorest countries, if not the poorest country in the world, uh, prior even to 1978. I mean, even after the revolution, it was really poor. But especially prior to 1949, China was one of the poorest countries, if not the poorest country in the world. And Russia, after 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union, was absolutely devastated by Western-backed shock therapy. So becoming a puppet of the United, or of imperialism, becoming an imperialist country ultimately leads to these things, right? It leads to these problems because it's the United States that has been facilitating all of the disasters 
over the last, especially uh, the last uh, 70 plus years. But uh, the U.S. has been really at this for its entire existence. But with that said, I don't want to speak too much more because I want to leave plenty of time for callers. So callers, let's go because I want to be on with you for 30 plus minutes. I want to have a good or around 30 more minutes. I want to have a good conversation with you all. So so let's do it. Let's let's have a conversation. Um, I'm here. Sometimes it takes a while for me to see it. I don't know why. Uh, but let me just uh, fiddle with this. Uh, so if there's any callers who want to call in, comments, and whatnot, I am here. Uh, so what is going on? Is I can't tell if anyone is here. This is a this is a long-standing issue on the Android app for me. Okay, here we go. I got Raina on, and you know if there's anyone else, uh, please do step forward. Questions? Any questions you have for me? If you want to bring up anything as well, uh, please do. But Raina, I am making you the next caller. You are able to talk. Uh, hi, Danny. Really interesting. Um, I've do you foresee somewhere somewhere down the road or right now in fact that these kind of things have have got to be like like some sort of badge of honor i know um i, I know i've heard i've heard jimmy dore say that um the smears that have been leveled at him by i think cnn and somebody else those are those are uh on his wikipedia page and he can't he can't get them off of there. He he can't he can't edit his own Wikipedia page, even though the things that that, that CNN said about him have been shown to be false. But they're they're still there on Wikipedia. I mean, and I I guess I don't assume that Wikipedia will last forever any more than anything else will. But I don't know to 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 what extent do the smears stick or or is it more badge of honor than anything else? Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, uh, I, for one, take it as a badge of honor. That's for sure. And we, we over at Black Agenda Report, ever since we were put on this proper not blacklist in 2000, what was that, 17, early 2017? I feel like, yeah, 2017, Washington Post published this ridiculous article by this anonymous source which of course if it's having I mean, something as anonymous as proper or not if you would go to the website you would see just how shady it is it listed all sorts of alternative media sources from across the political spectrum the far left to uh, i guess i'll just say the right i don't i don't really think there's any like far right websites on there and you know these were all publications that questioned the uh, imperialist uh, narrative to some degree. And we considered that a badge of honor. And so ever since then, ever since this whole campaign started, yeah, it is a badge of honor to be smeared. I I guess, as you alluded to with the Jimmy Dore example in Wikipedia, there are some consequences to that. So, of course, reputation is smeared to some degree, at least to those people who will listen. I do think that there is a polarization going on. So you have kind of these, I don't know what to say, kind of automatons of the establishment uh, on the liberal to whatever, the bipartisan spectrum. You 
those forces might be taken by this. But for the most part, anyone who is independent of that, sort of more outside of that realm of establishment thought, I don't think it really sticks in the sense ideological, you know, ideologically. I think it also has this very interesting, uh, uh, phenomena that, that occurs afterward, like this, this backlash, uh, this blowback to it, where generally these kind of attacks actually make existing supporters of people like myself and others uh, more enthusiastic, right, to defend us. And then it also uh, has the, the other, I think, uh, blowback uh, consequence of actually exposing our work to more and more people. So, so that's a positive, but the, I guess the negative, the, the one thing that does stick and that will stick is the possibility of censorship, right? So when, even though the Daily Beast is not read, and I've been thinking about this a lot, the Daily Beast is not really read by, I don't, th- I don't think many people. It says it has 1.3 million followers on Twitter, but yet it can be ratioed within seconds of publishing a so-called breakthrough piece, right? Like the one that they published uh, against me and Lee Camp and others. But their influence, right, as a corporate media outlet, just like the New York Times Associated Press, I think to a larger degree, they have more influence. But even the Daily Beast, the influence that they have on big tech corporations, right? The, the Silicon Valley, the media, uh, they, social media, et cetera, they can potentially influence them to become even harsher, like almost like a lobby group for censorship. And I think that's uh, really the, the, uh, the big issue here, uh, the, the principal issue. So while I don't think that the smears really stick, I do think that the consequences of the censorship is what sticks and could actually reinforce the smears and make them a little bit more effective. But nonetheless, Rena, stay on if you want to follow up. But I'm going to let Jeff, um, I'm going to let Jeff, uh, uh, on as the next caller. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, if you're there, you can unmute. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Danny, it's Jeff Melton. Uh, we follow each other on Twitter. Um, oh, hey. I, yeah, nice to talk to you. Um, so I sent you that uh, statement the other day that a group right. of us uh, put together about uh, Ukraine. I don't know if you had a chance to read it or what you thought about it. Not um, yet, but yes, yeah. I will. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's kind of a dilemma for me uh, because, um, you know, my personal position is that Although I'm sympathetic to people like Vijay Prashad, who said, you know, this or that thing, there's this or that thing Russia could have done diplomatically that might have, uh, you know, uh, resolved things peacefully. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical that anything they tried would have worked. And, uh, you know, from everything I've seen, they were really kind of pushed into this and it was a, just a question of you know when you know mm-hmm. they needed to intervene because um, you know the ukrainian troops were right there uh, ready to attack the donbass and they were shelling and all that so um yeah i guess uh, i'm wondering like you know how do we as the left who aren't like you know cheerleaders for nato or, or something which unfortunately a lot of so-called leftists are um you know, and just trying to think, you know, how we can 
you know, come together and uh, express a unified position uh, and what that will entail. Or maybe we'll all have to issue different factions. We'll have to issue separate statements or whatever about, uh, you know, how we feel about uh, this war and so forth. Um, so, so I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah. The, well, the anti-war left is in such sad shape. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll respond and then I'll put, um, you know, if Rena, you want to follow up anything I said, Jeff, follow up anything I said, or if there's any new callers, I'll take you all first. But, um, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good, I mean, those are, those are good points. I mean, in regard to, um, the, I think the pontifications about what Russia could have done, I mean, I'm not in agreement with that. I, I would say that just as we could not have predicted Russia would intervene when it did, because I think that there's a lot of information that we're just not going to get because this is happening in the back channels. This is happening within the realms of these states. And although maybe we could have been more astute in understanding just how dire the situation was. I think there are many of us who have been talking about the situation in Ukraine since 2014, uh, the U.S.'s role there, and, of course, the ongoing civil war, the Donbass issue. I mean, it's not like we weren't talking about this, but to predict that Russia would uh, uh, intervene in the way that it did I don't think that's something we could have uh, predicted at that moment. But that doesn't mean that it's appropriate to um, to pontificate about what Russia could have done to just settle this situation. Because I think that places responsibility on uh, the the not just the uh, party that's aggrieved, but I also think that it's the it places more pressure on uh, the weaker uh, the sort of the uh, the less influential force in this area and and while russia has certainly risen to a certain stature uh, it certainly right it certainly did not uh, uh, do anything to uh, sort of spur on nato expansion and it had no role other than uh, trying to right oppose the coup and the interference in Ukraine's politics. It didn't really have any role in what happened there either. It's just had to respond to what has been growing incursions uh, on its border, right? And, and it stayed back to a large degree for a very long time. So uh, I think, yeah, I think it is incorrect to put the onus on Russia when, in fact, the only way any kind of conflict in the world, whether it's the Russia-Ukraine conflict, whatever it is, right, the ongoing uh, instability in Syria and that region, uh, really the onus is on the United States because it's the United States that has treated the world like its quote-unquote backyard and has completely uh, obliterated any notion of international law and views itself as international law. So... I think that the left's position, the only position that can really be unified on, in my opinion, is that uh, we need to oppose the United States' and and organize and demand and do all that we can to oppose and stop the United States' ongoing 
uh, imperialist incursions around the world, including in this Russia-Ukraine situation. And that will allow more room. And if we can't agree upon some of the finer details about that, then I think it behooves those who are taking just what I think are just damaging public stances like, okay, what, what is Russia going to do? When is Russia going to stop things? Uh, I think it behooves them to, you know, to, to kind of stand down with that, at least in the sense of a, of a popular anti-war movement. You can have your opinions, but sometimes opinions are not really necessary, needed, or helpful, especially when it comes to organizing. So, Nonetheless, uh, I don't see any new callers, uh, but I will, if, if Rena, you want to have anything that you want to respond to in terms of what, uh, how I answered, um, your, uh, I put you on your, um, comments, uh, you can. Uh, thank, thanks again, Danny. Uh, the only person I've seen, um, uh, and be really explicit about Russia invading Ukraine, uh, is Norman Finkelstein, interestingly enough, and he said they've been trying for 20, whenever the whole, uh, whenever the whole thing was said about uh, NATO won't expand past the border of East Germany, he said Russia's, Russia's been trying since then to, by diplomatic means, to stop NATO expansion. And in his opinion, that was plenty long enough, and which is, it, it was kind of, a, it was kind of striking to hear him say that because everybody else dances around it and says, of course, this is an illegal, illegal invasion and it violates uh, international law, blah, blah, blah. And you, it's like, you have to say that before you can say anything else. Like, yes, of course we should pursue peace by diplomatic means, et cetera. So that's, that's just kind of an aside there. Um, two things uh, about, about w- what you were talking, talking about mainly here. I had no, I-, I haven't read that daily beast article and I don't think I will, but I had no idea they were blaming you all for causing people to be in camps for God's sake. How on, how on earth, how on earth can anybody write that without, I don't know, their brain exploding from cognitive dissonance. If anybody's trying to separate and divide and uh, create warring factions in the world, uh, it it has to be the neocons, imperialists, capitalists, pick your own pejorative. And uh, the, the second thing I wanted to say was, in some ways, what I find more frightening uh, someone had a co- has a comment in the in the chat about uh, Nina Jankowitz and the whole Ministry of Truth thing. What I find a little more alarming than that, or or the Daily Beast article, the most recent of these articles, which is this Daily Beast one, which targeted you and Max and others. Uh, I'm really finding the financial thing the most alarming. Because I I really don't know how y'all get around that. And right now it's PayPal again, mm-hmm. and uh, with uh, I, I I'm I can't think of the name of the of the website, um, um, the YouTube channel um, that that just got suspended 
from PayPal, but I think that's where Lee Camp was headed with with his new show. Um, and uh, so so that's just really sinister to me. I I remember Glenn Greenwald the, when he first wrote about uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and offered up a place and a method where people could contribute to WikiLeaks if they wanted to. And he immediately got blowback from a lot of readers who said, I'm afraid to do that. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid they'll come for me because I know they're going to come for WikiLeaks. And he was surprised by how much, how many people uh, expressed that kind of a sentiment. And it turns out that was, that was very prescient. And I, and I do find this, meddling with the with the finances of stuff i mean right now you know i'm 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 supporting as many people as i possibly can between substack and patreon and i think that i think those are the only two things that i'm doing presently uh and i i i don't use paypal for other reasons but i don't know what what if something happens to patreon what if what if what if something happens with Substack? I mean, the money thing to me is really is really scarier than than uh, than the words game because they're really pretty pathetic at the words game. I don't know. That's just random thoughts here. But thank you for this uh, mm-hmm. for this call, and it's been very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Thank well, thank you for those those comments. You know, uh, I. I do agree with that too. And it's all reinforcing, right? So you have, so you have now not only like the suppression and the removal, you had demonetization on YouTube for a very long time. I mean, it's kind of a a staple of this, uh, you know, censorship campaign. It afflicts my channel all the time. Of course, right. They have this whole memo about Ukraine. You say anything wrong about Ukraine. You've mentioned Ukraine, if it's not the establishment narrative and you're just demonetized that that video is demonetized. So, you know, people are being removed on streams, people's channels being taken down. I mean, that's been going on for a while now, but especially it's escalated since February 24th. But uh, the, the cutting off of people's revenue stream is really dangerous. And I've, I've linked to my Substack in the chat as well as to my Patreon. Um, I do use those two the most. I, I have a PayPal as well, um, Venmo um, and, and Cash App. But I use um, PayPal and Substack the most. And I'm not as worried about Substack, but Patreon is a big concern. And it's where I get most of my revenue from. It is a huge concern. And, and I think the the possibility of being taken down on there raises very tough questions for us. It's how do we uh, develop uh, revenue streams? I believe, and I hope that this will be the case, that we can create a larger platform, a larger sort of organizational structure among all of us who are kind of in this together that can sustain our work. But, but there are a lot of complications to that that I'm not even uh, privy to. It's, it's a project that I think we will need, uh, th- that will need to happen. Um, and that, that I'll continue to raise at least, uh, if, if I can't be the one who, who spearheads it. But nonetheless, when you do, when the, when the establishment is with, and, and yes, I agree, this sort of, uh, whatever it is, this board of misinformation or whatever, 
the Biden administration is spearheading, uh, they uh, they are attempting to remove us by any means necessary, and that includes revenue streams. And by getting rid of people's capacity to make, I mean, a quote unquote living, right? To just uh, be compensated and to be able to maybe lessen the burden of all the labor that it takes to do this work, so we can survive. I mean, I don't even consider this something profitable, right? It's it's incredibly difficult. Uh, to just, if you knew anything, I mean, if, if Matthew Forrester knew anything, this uh, hack, so-called freelance, quote-unquote, journalist, knew anything about Patreon, you know that it's self-employment, if anyone knows anything about <laughs> making money on self-employment, especially in these uh, gig economy networks like Patreon, not only are you charged pretty handsome fees to use the platform, uh, that's how they make their money, that's how they actually make super profits, is by uh, essentially charging you interest on every each and every contribution um not only that but you are also heavily taxed so it, the more money you make to a certain point of course if you're like there are some who make lots of money on patreon because they're much more well known than i am but if you make any money you're going to be taxed by it if you have to report so the self-employment tax is quite steep in most places and the federal one is quite steep so you're not going getting rich off of this. And so by removing it, you're reinforcing the silencing of us and, and, and pushing people into precarity, which is just as effective, if not more so than smearing us, as you said. So, so those are very good points, but I'm going to let, uh, uh, Rudy in on here. Of course, I put those links in the chat. If you do want to support through Patreon or Substack, that's very much appreciated. Um, uh, but let me, let me add in Rudy here before uh, – and I can circle back to Jeff before we leave. So, okay, Rudy, you are up uh, now making you the next caller. Yes. So now you can unmute yourself. Hey, how you doing, Danny? Doing all right. How are you? Pretty good. Um, yeah, thanks for what you do, man. can never say enough. Um, I was just thinking, you know, the thing that I see – is, I don't know, a barrier, I guess, to the unification of, like, left media is sort of the overly sort of responsible nature of everybody, where if you have, for example, and we have differing opinions, but it's really Mm -hmm. difficult to have such people because, and oftentimes those are, like, Jimmy Dore, for example, um, you... You know, this is where the energy is. This is a lot of where the real analysis is. Again, I'm not going to say I agree with everything, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, anytime you have to say something, you have to say, I don't agree here. I don't agree there. I don't agree there. To be able to say anything about these commentators that are doing really good work, these journalists that are doing really good work. Um, When anybody that's talking about, um, what's his name, the CNN goons, you don't, we don't, whenever we're talking about the Chuck Todd's and like, and the likes, we don't ever have to say, I disagree with uh, the shock Todd's, you know, support of all kind of murderous people and the likes. Uh, It's, it's, it's weird. And I sort of think we got to be a little bit less anal about such things. And I do understand that, you know, there's all kind of messed up ways that the FBI and the CIA and all of these creatures, you know, the way that they, you know, they have ways of just, 
taking the littlest space and making a whole ocean of it and just messing up a whole movement. And so people are a little bit sort of conscious and sort of of such things and so are defensive. But I think there might be some sort of margin between being overly paranoid about that and then like allowing people to say certain things that might make certain amounts of us like a bit uncomfortable sometimes, you know, because, you know, we're all people in this messed up and toxic sort of thing in the United States. So we're not perfect. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. I think, um, you know, it is complicated definitely to navigate. I mean, to navigate independent media sometimes. I mean, I, you know, I get it. There's no way when you have something as broad as the left, right? You have people coming from all sorts of ideological places and there's no way you're going to agree on everything. I, I do think that uh, there does need to be more robust engagement on things we do disagree upon. I would love that. I don't necessarily think it has to be like a quote unquote debate. I think we will of course debate the issues, but, but I also think that there's something really, I don't know, uh, American culture esque about debating that when it, you know, when it's structured in a certain way, it just doesn't, it doesn't lead to anything helpful. So I think among us in the independent media, right, I think we do have to be talking to each other more on what we disagree upon. I think one of the big issues for me has been in this regard, COVID-19. I think that there's just been so much polarization about this issue, so many, so many, so much so that we can't, it's difficult to even come together and talk about it. Uh, without these immense, almost like these immense emotions and anger and frustration. I think that has a lot to do with the way that the, uh, our mental health has been so taxed by this crisis. But at the end of the day, right, it's, it's such an important issue. And so, for example, like, you know, uh, people... Uh, real, I think people really get mad at me for taking certain stances on, uh, for example, uh, COVID-19 and China, right? Because I'm very supportive of China's COVID-19 uh, response uh, from, you know, back in January 2020 uh, to now. Like, I, I've been very supportive of what China has done. And I think there have been many iterations of people across the independent media sphere who have become either who are already who are just so skeptical of that and so opposed to it uh, that they they didn't want to engage in it or have uh, you know changed their own views on covid and have become uh, more and more skeptical of it and and by extension china so so it really does lead to unfortunate divisions, and I, I hope that we can discuss these things in a more, uh, I don't know, friendly manner, in a manner that where we say, hey, we actually do agree upon so many different things. We disagree upon these other issues, and why not? Why can't we talk about it? We don't. We're, we don't have to lend right some sort of advantage to the imperialists or to the intelligence agencies to the corporate media just because we have disagreements that doesn't have to be the case and and we can decide whether those disagreements should be public or whether they should just be private so we can figure out how to move but right now i feel like there's just so much 
confusion, alienation, anger, and uh, it lends itself to, I think, this atmosphere that you're pointing to where where actually it does uh, 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 almost stick a wedge between um, some uh, real unity, right? The ability for us to move forward together. And, you know, in the independent media sphere, uh, there are those who have much bigger followings and those who have smaller followings. I, I don't know. I consider myself somewhere in the middle. I've been very grateful for those who have lended their platform to me. But, but you know, the work that it takes to, to maintain and to expand readership and viewership, it's a lot of work in this censorship environment. And so, you know, what censorship does uh, from the imperialist is it, is it creates inequality among all of us, right? This kind of like inequality, not just of of our ability to to be seen, um, um, but it also uh, forces people to make difficult decisions about what they cover. And so, for example, my coverage of China, like you know, I'll not neglect that just because of the, f- the fucking algorithm. I don't give a shit about the algorithm. <laughs> like I'm going to continue to cover China, the new Cold War, et cetera, whether it's uh, a really hot topic at the moment or not, because uh, you know, to me, it's an existential question for the future of humanity. While others, right, if they are feeling the heat. They may say, well, I can't cover that right now because uh, there's all this pressure for us to cover more, I guess, uh, uh, hot topics, popular topics, trending topics in the media. And and, um, and so, so, yeah, that's essentially, you know, my take on this is, is hopefully we will, um, you know, hopefully we will, uh, uh, you know, continue to to figure these issues out together um but thank you for raising it and so jeff i will let you if there's nobody else you know i'll take one more caller perhaps one or two more uh, before i depart but i'm going to let jeff respond to anything that he would like to so i'm going to uh, put you on jeff hi hey danny um yeah, I just wanted to follow up on uh, what you were saying about the uh, division among the left regarding COVID and the pandemic. Uh, it, it just seems like there's this, well, it doesn't seem, I know there is this huge uh, individualistic slash libertarian streak among a lot of the Western left where um, individuals' rights to do alleged rights to do whatever, irrespective of its impact or potential impact on others, takes precedence over solidarity of basically just kind of thinking, hey, gee, maybe I should wear a mask. Maybe I should get vaccinated, not only for my own sake, but to protect other people who might possibly be more vulnerable than me. And that's just not on a lot of people's radar. Um, And then the other thing I've noticed is that... uh, um, yeah, there's certain things that, uh, you know, people, uh, who are prominent on the left, like, you know, Jimmy Dore or Max Blumenthal or whatever, whoever, you know, know a lot about and, uh, have very insightful things to say about. And I don't know, it's just like they think that, uh, they can, you know, express an intelligent opinion on anything, even if it's something that they really haven't looked into, like, you know, uh, China's COVID policies, as you mentioned, or uh, the efficacy of vaccines, or, you know, uh, how severe a threat uh, COVID is, and so forth. And 
you know, I'm not that, I'm not a doctor. I'm not that kind of scientist. Uh, um, you know, I'm just a, an intelligent lay person as far as those sorts of issues are concerned. But I took the trouble to look into those things, you know, and form my opinion based on, you know, formed an informed opinion. And you know, I see so many people on the left just kind of shooting off their mouths and having these really strong opinions about uh, you know, things that they haven't really looked into, uh, such as this. And then there's this just you know, individualism, individualism that's so pervasive in Western culture, even on the left. That's, I think, a really problematic aspect of uh, people's philosophical outlook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we... We live in the belly of the beast, and that is that is the the hegemonic environment that we live in, and and you know, for me, it just seems like a huge consequence of this just long period of just devastation that this pandemic has been allowed to uh, rot on on the United States in particular, and. This this uh, emboldening of of the right. I mean, uh, you know, I don't subscribe to the Trump emboldened the far right kind of narrative to a, a large degree. Uh, however, this has been going on for years now, right? This sort of uh, the destruction of public life of any kind of working class organization uh, that's been going on for decades, and so uh, the fruits of it are really being bore. I think here with with covid and and so definitely you know there is a lot of sort of individualistic mindset uh, to this that ideology this kind of like americanism is is just i think supercharged right now and i think it's hard for a lot of us uh, not to get caught up into it for me you know I, i find myself lucky one to know so many people who live in china i know someone you know I didn't interview him. He didn't feel uh, comfortable at the moment. But I know someone who lived in the Shanghai complex that was supposedly "quote unquote" screaming. It's called the Costco. Costco, not to be confused with Costco, uh, the U.S. corporation, but Costco. It's called the Costco complex, full of like artists and and and, and foreigners. A lot of foreigners live there, but of, of course, a lot of people in Shanghai live there. But that was what went viral that complex went viral for quote unquote screaming and he lives there and he was like i was there people were actually singing uh they were singing really poorly off key you know sort of like an italy situation that stuff happened in italy uh, uh a lot during the initial uh, lockdown uh, situation you know people are stressed people are trying to let off some steam but it was not screaming because they were starving and dying whatever right uh, it was because people were unhappy and connecting, you know, given a tough situation. So, you know, for me, I'm lucky to know a lot of people who live in China. I knew someone, I knew an American who lives who lives in Wuhan, who, you know, was chatting with me on WeChat for all the entire, you know, we still chat as much as we can. Uh, but during that lockdown period in Wuhan, he was chatting with me. I got to get a good sense of what was going on. And then, of course, I know several Chinese there as well who can give me that picture from a real personal perspective. So I was very lucky to be able to uh, really know how how China did things. And so, so I, ne- I, I never felt 
suspicious, right? I got back from China and was just so worried about the U.S. situation because everyone kept coming up to me being like, well, are you worried, you know, because that virus, that bat virus is going around. It was already so bad. And these are like New Yorkers, right? Like working class New Yorkers, like, like, <laughs> like, uh, 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 you know, Puerto Ricans and just the like, general lay people who were just like, aren't you worried about it? And I'm like, um, not really. I'm more so worried about how you're asking me very uh, racially tinged questions because of how the media is uh, honestly manufacturing consent for a new Cold War in China, which makes us think anything that China does is bad when we probably should be taking a look at what they're doing because they're experiencing this right now. Nonetheless, though, there's that. And then, you know, I also feel lucky, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a social worker by trade. And at that time, I was working with seniors. And, you know, from all the things that we learned very early, that this is a very deadly virus for seniors and continues to be in China, right? There have been dozens of people. I think at one point, they were averaging like 40, 50 people per day, almost all elderly dying of, of this Omicron variant, supposedly less less deadly but they were dying and for me i'm just like their lives are too valuable to be dying of something that can be at least mitigated and contained right so for me like i i just can't just knowing the work that i've done knowing you know i just i i can't just negate any solidarity to them right i can't just let that go so so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot to work through here. This is going to be a long-term process. I think people have really buckled down. So uh, so I personally, you know, for me, I've had to just – it's I, I just kind of step away from it. I give my views on the things that I think are very important. But you know, a lot of people have buckled down and, um, you know – it can get very tiring and stressful to to get into wars um especially with people that like i i feel like we need to come together on other issues around so it can be it can be very very tough and challenging but nonetheless uh we continue forward so rudy i'm gonna let you be the last person here before i depart so I'm going to make you the next caller and you can unmute and then we will close up here. So thank you everyone for, for coming through. Um, if you have any, uh, um, and, and I'll close after Rudy's comments. Yeah, I was just um, going to touch up on what you had um, said. I think it's, it's crazy that somebody on the left would look at your position um, regarding, uh, what's it called, COVID, and say that this is the red line. You know, when... Your position would not have done anything against uh, what's it called the Delta variant. You know, your, it's not like your position is that the United States should not um, give or allow India to produce its own vaccine or get the material, or get the help. You agree? Like you're not your position isn't that when Argentina asked for the vaccine that we should charge them a leg and an arm. It's the Biden administration and. So many of these people are willing to be cool with the Biden administration, even defend them. But Danny, they won't touch with the 10 foot pole because of you. It's it's crazy. And I mean, you're, you're right that we're going to have to work with these people. But it really is insane that the, the these subjective, you know, red lines that people have. It's it's wild. But yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, thanks for the comment. I mean, 
I mean, yeah, like, like for me, COVID-19, <laughs> we're going to keep talking about it because it continues. And yeah, I have, you know, for me, I've always taken this as a political question because it's been politicized. And so, well, of course, we should be, you know, look at the science and all of that. Uh, from the very beginning, none of that has really uh has really been adhered to here. So for me, right, if this is going to be taken as a political question, then I'm going to try to take the, uh, at least the position that makes the most sense for human beings. And that has been looking, and that's been since the beginning, looking at what countries like China has done, not just China, but, you know, I guess we could throw New Zealand in there, we could throw Cuba in there, even Venezuela in there to a degree. Some of these countries have had to really make unfortunate sacrifices because of economic concerns, but but still, a lot of these countries represent what you can do politically to address uh, this virus. What do you prioritize? Who do you prioritize? Uh, and that's a reflection of politics. So if it's going to be politicized, then for me, it's about, okay, how do we make sure that people are one protected to the largest degree and two our lives are as quote-unquote normal whatever that means i mean as long uh, you know quote-unquote i guess back to uh what it was beforehand where we still had a lot of work to do but nonetheless i guess socially a little easier to navigate you know, how do we get to that level uh to, to some degree of that kind of normalcy so to speak and I think China, China really is at the top of that, you know, is at the top of what that looks like um, because of their robust economic growth, even during this period, because lots of people, most of the population has been living relatively normally as uh, comparative, compared, uh, comparing, um, in comparison to uh, countries around the world. So, I don't see the controversy. For me, I don't see the controversy. But of course, China this, China's bad, China's quote-unquote authoritarian. And that has a real impact on the left. I, I mean, uh, to be honest, not many people even among independent media touch this question. China is like 20% of the world, uh, not 20%, uh, but nearly 20%, nearly one out of every five people on the planet is Chinese, but we can't. Uh, we can't talk about China because it just doesn't get the clicks or something. It doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't get the same kind of attention, all of this. And then of course, just the prejudices that are built based on the propaganda. And so I think we're far behind in this question on the new cold war, I guess, you know, I'll just say this as my last comment on this question of the new cold war the U.S. left or what is left of it is far behind on China than, let's say, Russia, right? People are willing to defend Russia. You have people taking their entire, like literally almost crafting their entire journalistic endeavors around Russia and Syria, etc. cetera, um, these kind of issues, but not with China. You will not get that with China, and at least in this moment. And so, here I am. That's why I talk so much about China, because I feel like it is wholly necessary and it is just as important, if not the most important um, target of imperialism in this new Cold War. And and we got to do it. So nonetheless, it's been a, it's been a great room today, guys. Um, keep 
you know, make sure you subscribe to this show. Uh, follow me on here on Colin. Make sure that you're getting so you can get the notifications, and all of you can be back uh, for the following episodes that we have. Uh, that I have. I'm on here 11:30 a.m. Uh, each Sunday, and then of course I notify if there's any other uh, times I need to do just because of scheduling and whatnot. And then of course, you know, with the censorship campaign, I think you know I'm just I'm just gonna plug. Right. So I put the Patreon and Substack links in the chat. You know, I put a cash app if that's better for you. But, you know, Patreon and Substack would be great if you can follow and subscribe to my work there. Um, and yeah, that, you know, I post all of my work on there. Nothing is behind a paywall in the public sense. Like I, I publish all of my work publicly, my articles, my streams, etc. Uh, but People on Patreon and Substack generally get sort of like early access, so to speak. They get notified first. And, uh, you know, I appreciate all the support that you're able to provide. So, uh, nonetheless, thank you so much for all of uh, your support and for coming to this show today. Uh, you tuned into another episode of Cold War Brew. And, um, you know, uh, come through next Sunday and I hope to see you again. Bye-bye.